Now, I've been told that I apparently missed a great deal of the blanks. So, where is... Um, there you are. What, the, what do you need? I mean, what do, what do you need, Claire? Not Cla- Gail. Claire. Gail. What blanks do you need? Oh. I'm sorry. I'm distracted by the guy up above your head. <laughs> Get out of here, Dave. Get out of my classroom. I'm sorry. Hey, all right. Okay. All right. Source. Source of praise. Inwardly and passionately. All right. Lee. To see. Practical, personal. Oh. Just the C, God, because I totally didn't say that one because of his great God. God. <clears throat> God. Oh, okay. Yeah, normally I'll emphasize when I'm doing a blank and. Okay, okay. Uh, Okay. Oh, let me get my stuff out here. What? 1D1. Continual praise. I just got to ask 1D2. Source. Oh, 1E. Safety and stability. 1E is safety and stability. Passionately. I got a bingo. Okay. Uh, oh, man. It's weird, though. Like, sometimes things will pop in your brain out of nowhere. So I was talking about the righteous get knocked down, but they get up again. <laughs> Those of you who know, know. And then I'm like, that's the one thing I must not say. You know? And some part of me is like, I can turn that into a corny joke. And then the wiser part was saying, no, no. So... Um, we didn't do it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, count yourself blessed. Uh, there's a one-hit wonder infectious song from the 90s that, yeah. Anyway. Mm. Okay. Thoughts or questions about this stanza? Yeah. My microphone. She needs a microphone. Was it? It was I do. This isn't a sermon. This is this is the ABF. We let our hair down here. Lee, yes. Uh, well, my question is in in my Bible. It says I think it said sin or shin. It gave two uh, sorts of letters. There's two letters that basically are identical in Hebrew, but depending on how you vowel yeah. point them, sin or shin. Okay. And so this is the strophe for that one. It, it, it's, and it's the same letter though. Yes. Okay. Well, it is, but it isn't. Okay, so. It's the same letter followed by a different vowel. So the Hebrew text has no vowels. You're supposed to know what the vowels are. The Masoretes, recognizing that spoken Hebrew was going out of style and was about to be lost, invented a vowel-pointing system. And so Sin gets one vowel point and Shin gets the other. But in the Hebrew text, it's one letter. 
but it'd be the difference of something like a sh and a shu, like that. And so it is two sounds. This letter can represent two sounds, but it's one letter. Does that make any sense? So sin or sheen, it's, it's a Hebrew thing. It's a Hebrew thing. Um, yeah, yep, yep. Okay. But that was the weird thing is the entire vowel point system is the, the, the Hebrew copyists so took seriously the text, they didn't want to interrupt it. So they found a way to add the vowels around the text dots and it, it makes it really it's not intuitive they're like two dots a triangular dot a line underneath they, they have this vowel pointing system so they don't interfere with the text itself um and that's what they came up with no well it's like the greek the greek text was all uppercase with no spaces the original text. So, like your Greek New Testaments now, they've added it. But the original, whatever Paul, James, Peter wrote, was all uppercase, all uninterrupted um, text block. Which accounts for some of the debates over, you know, divisions and things. Yeah, yeah exactly. You got it. Okay. Bennett. I was wondering in... Um, the sanctify, no, it's in C, actually, sanctify, I can't say this word, sanctifying. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not following. Point D, satisfaction, is that what you're talking about? That's it. That's it. Okay, so your question, Bennett, about satisfaction. And also term terminate tem, temptation. Those are these two questions I want to ask. Okay. So um, part part of the part of the rationale here, and those anyone here who's read John Piper knows I'm I'm borrowing heavily from him. It's his notion, and I think he's exactly right, that in a long term strategy of fighting against sin. Self-control by itself alone is a weak, um, is a weak plan. You, you really have to want something more. You have to delight in something more. You fight temptation with a greater desire, ultimately. Now, sure, there's, there's, there's absolutely the fruit of the Spirit of self-control and developing the ability that when a strong impulse arises within you um, to say no, to take your body captive, that's great. I don't think we're meant to day by day live our life with that as the primary means of sanctification. Ultimately, you say no to the junk food because you're looking forward to dinner. The best way to avoid the junk food is to have more tasty dinner. Does that make sense? So you don't ruin your appetite. And having a greater desire and satisfaction, you see it here. He's got princes plotting against him. And we know from elsewhere in the psalm that troubles him. He's scared. But look at this word. I'm in awe of it. It's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Um, his, sat, his satisfaction, even as we know he's, he's, his life is in his hands, his soul's brought down to dust, he, seven times a day, I'm thankful for your word. Th- what's sustaining him, uh, Piper uses the analogy of a keel or ballast in a boat. What's stop, you ever see a, I grew up on a, on a lake and we had a little sunfish, one sail, little, little probably 12 foot, 15 foot little sailboat. And if you ever tried sailing without the rudder, the wind would just go and knock it over. And what stops the sailboat from just getting knocked over is both the, the keel, the, rudder, the, the, the part that goes down in the middle, 
and the weight down there, what's called ballast, and that gives some stability. And, and a sailboat with a keel with ballast is stable even in a storm, and it can actually that can be used to push it along profitably. These types of satisfactions, delights, pleasures, um, thanksgivings give that stability when the external storm surrounds. If princes are plotting against me, that's true. And, and he'll, in the next stanza, will load it with petitions. It's not to say satisfaction in God's word makes you not want to be delivered from danger. It does provide some stability and some sense of calm in it. And that's being highlighted here. So when I talked about satisfaction and temptation... I'm getting at the reality that ultimately if you want a long-term strategy to, to resist a sin or a temptation, you're going to need to find something you want more, something that you find more pleasing, more satisfying, Are you saying more you want us to have like a great relationship with God? Sorry. It'll be my help. Can you say that one more time? Are you trying to say you want us to have like a great relationship with God? Yes, having a great relationship with God is definitely part of that. Definitely part of that. So like, let, me, let me give an example of what I mean. Um, so let's suppose... Um, let's suppose that Is it I, wrong that I know a person who is like uh, atheist? It is not wrong that you know an atheist, Bennett. No. No. Okay, go on. Now, you were going to show us an example. Sorry. So the, so the example would be, um, if I'm struggling with the fear of man, what do people think of me? Right? So I'm, I'm speaking right now, and I could, after we get done, I wonder what they thought. Did they think I was clever? Did they think I was witty? Did they think I spoke well? Did my mom think I invented? How many words did I invent this morning, Mom? I thought I invented at least one. I thought I caught myself with at least one. I'm like, that's going to go on our list. But um, I could be consumed with that, how do I fight that? There's a sense in which how do you, fighting pride, fighting the fear of man, is, can be like chasing your tail. Ultimately, what I need to shift is to being more concerned with what God thinks of it. Lord, was that pleasing to you? Lord, was that faithful? Lord, were you... Ultimately, that's how I'm going to fight it, having someone, up, someone who I fear more. The biblical concept is fear of man. I fear, I value I'm concerned with it's heavy what you guys think. Well, there needs to be somebody who's even heavier and weightier and more serious. And I'm all that's where you come in where you say God, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. There you go. That that would be thank you so much, Jeremy. You're quite welcome. Other questions or thoughts? It might be easier standing. Okay, Lucas. No, microphone is coming. A microphone is coming. So I had the verse about in in the book of Jeremiah eleven verse eleven. Okay. It's saying about therefore thus yep. says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them; they cannot escape through the cry to me. I will not listen to them. That's the verse saying in in book of Jeremiah. Well, thank you, thank you, Lucas. Okay, other, other, uh, let, let me, let me get back to, let me turn to 2 Corinthians 3 again. I want to, I want to highlight what I'm getting at here. Because, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not, in my experience, talking to people, stanzas like this week's stanza can be daunting. I think I said that. 
Because if you're on, you're, and neither option is good. Don't fake it. Pretend this is where you're at. And don't just give up. And I've met people like that's for super Christians. That's not for me. This is in Israel's songbook. God gave this to the entire corporate nation of Israel to sing. Gave it to you and to me. And we've already seen in the psalm earlier, ask for this. This is the goal. This is the believer when all cylinders are firing. When the view of God and his word is not being muddied by sin. This is, this is, what, this is peak operations. And then we seek after that. And, and what it should be is troughs and peaks, they're getting closer to this mean with the troughs being shallower over time and the peaks being a little higher. That, that's ideally what we're looking for. This, this, is, this is what we're going after. So the 2 Corinthians 3, which I had to sort of fly through because I got to make sure I give Daniel enough time for communion. Um, it was just kind of dirty. It's like, it's 10 past. Here you go. You, you sprint. So I got to move, you know. Um, the 2 Corinthians 3, and there's a lot of ways we can view sanctification, growing in holiness, but this is, this is a huge one. 2 Corinthians 3, and I'll go a little more slowly through it this time. Um, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil on his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So he's actually shifting metaphors. Moses went to the tent of meeting, met with God. He came out, it, his face glowed. The Israelites thought that was creepy. He covered it with a veil. And then he shifts to a metaphorical veil. If you were to ask Paul why Israel nationally, by and large, rejected their Messiah, one answer he would give, one way of speaking of it would be because they were blinded. They were veiled to his glory. Um, their minds, um, th- but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. And if you say, well, how could they read? Isaiah 53. How could they read Deuteronomy 18 and miss Jesus? They weren't seeing it clearly. That's how. They're veiled. For only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And the veil is, in this case, over what? God's word. And we're going to see in chapter 4, you could speak of another veil of seeing the Lord himself, but here the veil is directed towards Scripture, right? It's whenever Moses is read. So God's word is veiled. And then here's how he frames sanctification. But when none turns to the Lord, verse 16, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, implicitly where? In Scripture, specifically, he'd be using Moses. Paul's saying, you want to get technical, you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're seeing the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And the, the picture here is you see some new glorious thing in God's word, and that changes you. And then you come back to the text a little changed, and God shows you a new glorious thing in his word. And there's this is constantly a virtuous circle. Instead of a vicious circle, it's a virtuous circle. And you're just being changed, and you're seeing, and you're being changed. So, one moment, Don. So that's where I'm trying to argue. The notion of, of seeing things that are satisfying, seeing things that are beautiful, beholding things that are wonderful in God's Word is not some little, like, bolt-on aftermarket thing. It's, 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 this, it's the 
marrow of the Christian living. And if you're going to try to pursue Christ and make this something for super Christians, good luck. Dawn. Microphone, Dawn. I'm just going to sing. It's a microphone time. It's a mic. Okay, here he is. I think it's uh, just, just struck me here. Um, the reason Moses wore the veil was so that they wouldn't see the glory departing. The, yeah. the glow getting less and yeah. less. But at the end, we, the glory is getting more and more. That's good. excellent. The, the, veil, the veil is removed but the, because the glory is getting greater. Right. Amen. Let's, let's keep reading. This, is, this, is, this passage is so, I think, helpful in uh, looking at salvation and sanctification. The Bible can frame salvation and speak of it in a number of ways. And I think we're most commonly aware of um, the, the, the law court metaphor, which is what Paul unpacks in Romans 3, all of Romans really, and the notion of believing that is, is, is endemic through the Gospel of John. You believe, whoever believes, whoever believes. The Bible can speak in other ways. Like 1 Thessalonians, those who perish because they refuse to love the truth. It is equally biblical. Why do unbelievers perish? Because they don't. John 3, whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? Or you could say because they refuse to love the truth. That's a biblical way of speaking. I'm going to give you another one here. And the answer, because they don't see glory. That's going to be the answer. So another way of framing, they're not in conflict. These are all true ways of speaking of salvation and believers and unbelievers. And this is why it's helpful to get more than one of these paradigms is because it's fleshing out a reality. And so there's no conflict between them. Those who love the truth are those who believe are those who see glory. They're, they're one group. But you could speak of them in different ways. And here's one way. So ignore the chapter division. Go straight on into chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and cunning and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning we're to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, now here Paul is going to describe why Paul, uh, let me jump back. He's anticipating this argument. Paul, if your gospel is so glorious, if it's so much greater than Moses' glory that departed, if you think you've got something better than Moses has, and he does, then why do so many of your countrymen not care, not get interested? Well, he's already given us a partial answer because a veil lies over their face when they read Scripture. Well, that same metaphor of a veil, a blinding influence, think of Jesus having eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. This is that same type of picture of spiritual sensory um, deprivation, which is all over, it really starts in Isaiah 6 and gets, anyway. This is the same metaphor. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, and here's the explanation. Well, why are they perishing, Paul? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul preaches the gospel, and it's the same picture. It's not that the gospel's boring. If people think it's boring... It's because they have a veil over their face. They don't see glory in it. So it's, I think, biblical to say, 
Why do people not receive the gospel? I could say, John, we read John 3, because they love the darkness and they hate the light. Another answer could be, because they don't see any glory in the gospel. That, that's, that's what Paul said. These are all true things. They're not in conflict. They're true ways of speaking. They don't, they don't see anything. Wonder- let, me, let me just back up even a step further and talk about glory. Glory is a term we don't generally use outside of, um, outside of religious context. But here's a shorthand definition. Glory is what creates, produces awe, wonder, and joy in us. And we're hardwired for glory. You ever go to the Grand Canyon? Anyone here gone to the Grand Canyon? When you look over the edge, you, you, don't, you don't think about it. Whoa! You, you just have been stopped by just an amazing sunset or sunrise. People watching sports. Why do people watch sports? I believe they watch sports because they want to see glory. There's a glory in, in a skilled peak physical human throwing with precision and a play being carried out perfectly and somebody getting past the defense and, and, and people get to their feet and they're cheering. Why? They, they believe they're seeing something glorious. Look at that play and how well it was run and executed. Same thing when you watch the Olympics and the gymnastics and you're seeing glory. And it's captivating. And nobody sits and says, well, I guess I'll cheer. It just happens, right? Because we were made to behold glory and we were made to find satisfaction in glory. We were made to find joy in glory. So then we need to see something like that in God's word or we need to fight to see it because that is what's going to fuel but first, that's what's going to convert us. And second, that's what's going to sanctify us. So let me keep going. It's, I'm just throwing the word glory around. And I want to I give you a sort of working definition of glory. Glory, we can't help when we see glory, but to respond with, whoa, you know, or, or whatever. It just comes right out of us. Because we were made to be worshipers. And worship is just the old English, worth-ship. It's just us ascribing value. Greatness, wonder, whoa, that's worship language so keep them going um has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light the gospel and the glory of christ who is the image of god that's why people perish okay how do people get saved in verse five he for what we proclaim is our, not ourselves but christ as lord with ourselves as your servants for jesus sake verse six how do you, how'd you get saved god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You became saved because God, notice the, the parallel with Genesis 1, let there be light. God, just as he spoke into nothingness and created light, God removed the veil from your heart or caused the light to shine in. And you beheld the glory of Christ, um, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then you responded to that in faith. You saw and you responded in leaning in, committing yourself to him. That's, that's how you got. If you're here as a Christian, that's how you became a Christian. God ripped the veil off and said, let there be light. And you saw and what you saw was enthralling and captivating, and you entrusted yourself to the one you saw and was revealed. So you really did believe, but you believed in response to seeing something that you hadn't seen before. And I don't know if you've had this experience where you were a witness to him for years, you'd heard the gospel, and, you heard, and then one day it knocked your socks off, and, and, and the penny dropped, and all the different metaphors we have. But that's, 
That's a biblical way of talking about how you became a Christian. And that's why getting bored with God and his word is, is, should be a scary thing. Because you got saved by seeing glory, and at the end of chapter 3, you're growing in the image of God by seeing glory. And so if you stop seeing glory for long periods of time, watch out. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's one of the things I really appreciate about John Piper's ministry and his work. He's, he grew up in a sort of uh, overreaction from emotionally excessive Christianity. Where you had, because you can, like I said, with the wings of the plane and the, the scissor blades, you can have, and I've seen, more charismatic churches. Not that this is true of all of them. I'm not trying to diss charismatic churches. But you can definitely have churches where the tears are rolling down, the hands are uplifted, the emotions are high. And midweek, people are living lawlessly and godlessly. Just as you can have very orthodox churches with zero feelings and emotions. And that's what Piper was sort of growing up. And Piper was dealing with, we don't want to be like that. We just keep the rules and we do our bit and we don't have emotions because that's wishy-washy, fishy stuff. And Piper's saying, no, yeah, no way. <laughs> you need both. You need zeal and you need knowledge. The two need to come together. You need, you can't expect to live the Christian life on willpower. You're going to fail radically. Um, and so stop downplaying the affections, the emotions, the the longings, the desires, the satisfactions. And so Piper's been making a large point out of highlighting in, in the Bible the many, many, many places where they're emphasized. Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who found a treasure and in his joy sold everything he had to obtain it. Understanding the gospel and trusting Christ is finding a treasure that you rejoice in. It's not just I made a mental decision. At least not the way Jesus frames it. So that's that's what I'm trying to get at is stanzas like today's stanza highlight that reality. These are important aspects of the Christian life. You can't just say they're for some people, not for others. And I also would say I've also met people who try to fake this. They think this is spirituality. And so whether they're feeling good or bad, how that's great. Hallelujah. Like the psalm has shown the ups and downs, the the the. Uh, the sufferings and the anguish and the laments. And you got a, a Psalm like 119 shows you the Christian life's going to have ups and downs and seasons of delight and joy and seasons of anguish. And, and that's, God intends that. that that's not abnormal. Um, okay, I just said a whole bunch there. I didn't want to interface with anything I just said there. Oh, Don again. No, 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 no. Go, Don. Just have a an artist I like to listen to uh, has a song. It ain't no sin to get the blues. No, oh. our Lord is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. I'm not aware of a single passage that records Jesus laughing. I'm not saying he didn't laugh. It just didn't make it to the text. That, that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief did. Right, absolutely. Um, so so it's that middle way of not faking it and not ignoring it, but pursuing it and it's tough to pursue it because you can't just make yourself excited about what you're not excited about which means then every day we're up against our need of grace because i can't i can pretend i'm excited about scripture i can i can try to fake it but i can't make it happen 
what I can do is recognize the importance. And I, I love the picture of Jacob. I'm not letting you go to get a blessing. Lord, I'm here. I'm at your word. I'm not going to anything else till I see something beautiful, till I see something exciting. I can't make myself see something exciting, but I can make sure I stay here till I see something. And I'll fight you for it. <laughs> I'll fight you for it. Okay, Carrie. Oh, Zeb? No, who's got the mic? No, I wasn't sure if somebody. Carrie? Zeb, are you going to say something or no? Okay, Carrie is. Not this time. All right. All right. So I'm sure that you've probably talked about this before, but are there some places that like when we're wrestling to try and see glory from God, are there some places that you go to or that you recommend going to first maybe? Like yeah. obviously we want to see all of God's word as glorious. And like, yeah. so you don't want to just pick your favorite three passages and you're like, well, today I'm going to just look at those and that's it. Mm. But if you find yourself struggling, maybe in your Bible reading plan or something and you're wrestling with it and you feel like you're not gaining ground, like, are there some places yeah. that you can go back to, to try and refresh that a little bit so you can go back? And yes. Yes. Fight? So let me, let me qualify. You probably picked up and I like to qualify things. Um, all of God's word is glorious, but some of its, I think some of its glories are easier to see. So I have no doubt the eight chapters of genealogies in First Chronicles are filled with glory. It's harder right off the bat. No, no, but I've got professor. Oh, you got to understand this. This is the promise fulfilled of that. I mean, I'm not mocking it, right? I think the gospels tend to be places and i think anytime the, the camera for for lack of a better term is on jesus i i think we're looking at much more self-evident glory and goodness gospels tend to be uh, for most people very um instrumental in seeing the glory of god in the face of jesus christ for conversion um prophecies fulfilled prophecies paul unpacking because because if you want to think of the new testament the gospels tell us what happened and then Paul and the epistles tell us the so what of what happened, what to make of it. Um, so we see Jesus die on the cross. And then Paul says, do you understand he was a substitutionary atonement, justifying that God was just and justifier of the righteous? For the, I mean, so Paul's telling you what that means. I mean, Jesus does too, no doubt. But, but the epistles are, here's what this means and here's how to live in light of it. So the gospels tell you what happened, what did God do? And then the, the, the epistles tell you so what and what to do about it. I would start there, but also keeping a record of passages that you've found particularly beautiful, and they're going to be different for different people. So I got passages when I feel my heart getting um, toughened that pretty consistently, because I know where to look, you know what I mean? And, um, and yet also trying not just to rely on your th three favorite passages, but trying to find beauty in other books. I've never seen, I mean... I'm, one of the things I'm looking forward to going to in Habakkuk is if you've never really read through Habakkuk, showing you at least some glories, some beautiful things are in Habakkuk that maybe you've got another pasture to come back to and feed in. So broadening that, but also keeping track of those places. I mean, there are certain passages in the Gospels. I just, uh, Jesus, when he crosses over the sea to the Decapolis and the demon-possessed guy with legion, and he's pleading to get in the boat. I just love like, that. Oh, that's an awesome passage. And so I, I go back there a lot. So Daniel quoted Psalm 51. That's one I, I go to again and again and again. As, as places, so on the one hand, knowing it's going to be individual by individual. I don't have a list of like the Bible's greatest hits, but Carrie's greatest hits, Carrie's favorite tracks. Oh, it's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> uh, 
Carrie's playlist, right? No, but that's what we work out. It's like textual playlists. I like this one, I like this one. And I'm trying to learn to like this one and this one and this one because people tell me that's a great one. And you do that with music, right? Someone's like, oh, you got to listen to uh, Dvorak's Ninth, you know. Ninth or Fifth, Mom? Ninth? Okay. No, she recommended it to me, the New World Symphony. And it took me about 10 listens to, to really for it to click. I love it now. But sometimes people will recommend something to you. And you're like, okay. People say this is really good. You know? And, okay. So people have really been blessed by Habakkuk. Okay. <laughs> no, right? Because um, nobody, I think, has seen glory in every page of the Bible. If someone told me, I'm like, okay, tell me what you saw that was beautiful in Amos 5. And they're going to go, ah. Right. I believe it's there. The testimony of God's people over time is it's there. But I haven't seen all, all of that. Um, so it's, it's seeing new glorious things and keeping track of the ones you've seen. So you can go back and, and, and keep your uh, desires and affections going. So that, that would be my medium-sized answer, Carrie, is finding new things, but also keeping a record of some of the old ones. Um, because that can also be helpful in ministering to other people. You know, if you've got a passage that you just love and you've got a handle on, you can use that to comfort, to encourage, to exhort people, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> earlier, I don't want to make too much out of a metaphor, but your metaphor about going to like a game and watching a, a glorious thing transpire and yeah. how you don't sit there and decide, well, I guess I'm going to cheer now and then you... It's sort of an overwhelming thing that comes with the participation. Yeah. Something that kind of clicked in my mind was not to neglect the fellowship of of believers, mm. and that that maybe dovetails a little bit into what Carrie was asking. I know it does for me sometimes that I'm more encouraged by being around believers um, when I'm struggling to be encouraged or to find glory. That those are oftentimes moments where it's mm. like, oh man, you know. I would have skipped out on small group this week, but instead I didn't, and that was really good to be in that in that space and and just with other believers. So I think in some ways, maybe again, not to make too much out of your metaphor, but there's something about that. You don't want to be a disingenuous just following the crowd kind of thing, but I think yeah. for believers, there is something to to be said for for the cheering and the yeah. excitement. You know, when the fourth quarter rolls in in the sermon, and you're like, "Yes, preach it!" You know. <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah i don't know no 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 a- absolutely i think uh, you, absolutely that as one of us is encouraged and god intends for us to voice his faithfulness to others god uses that to encourage other people so i called a friend of mine who it's amazing our hearts get revealed my friend tom in new hampshire and i was looking forward to him asking me questions about our new pregnancy and wouldn't you know it? Instead, he was telling me about some awesome things God was doing in his life. <laughs> and very quickly, I forget about what I was. I was like, "Whoa!" He just got over. Uh, he had a tumor in his brain that they had to take out, and he had all, and just all these, all, all of the way the body helped get him to the hospital and back. The witnessing he did in the hospital, and so as he's just recounting God's faithfulness, it was just very encouraging, you know. Um, because ultimately, when we, when we give God glory, we're reminding each other of who God is and what he does. And so when I'm down and Scott says, let me tell you about how God is faithful in my life, I can be happy for Scott. But the other thing that happens is I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what God's like, isn't it? Um, he is kind. He is, he is faithful. He is good all the time. Okay, yeah. I don't know. Where, where did that originate, that practice? 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I wasn't sure if that was like a navigator's thing or something, so I wasn't sure. But I've, I've, yeah. God, all the time. God is good. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. His response. It's like call and response. I wasn't sure. Okay. Fair enough. Every Bible camp ever. I'll believe that. Um, I'll believe that. Okay. Um, no, but that that is hugely important of why why fellowship is um, is important. But go go to Hebrews ten. Let me piggyback off that Timothy. Um, Hebrews ten. Starting in nineteen, and and the the rationale is there's two truths: the sense in nineteen and the sense in twenty one. Because of these two truths, there are three um, heads of lettuce. There's three or three oratory subjunctives: let us do this, let us do this, and let us do this. So two truths leading to three group lettuces. And the key is it's not individual. It's us together. Let us together do these three things. So the first truth, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So since we believe through Jesus' death, we can enter God's presence, verse 21, and since... We have a great high priest over the house of God. And since when we enter there, our priest is there priesting. He's already been unpacking that from chapter 5 on. Let us, first, group activity. Again, this isn't individual. You can't do this sitting at home. This is let us together draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's draw near with confidence together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There's been a lot in the book of Hebrews about holding fast and how that's a group activity. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you. So all you all take care, lest in any one of you there be an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But all you all encourage one another day after day while it's still called today, so that all you all do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's a group preventative guarding against an individual drifting and falling and hardening away. And then 24. And let us, third group activity, consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Notice, by the way, this is the verse by which we get like gathering to worship is not optional. He's assuming we're gathering. Rather, he's saying the let us is giving thought before we gather. That's the verb, right? Let us consider. It's not let us gather. Now, you can't do the thing you're considering to do unless you gather. So it is a necessary subpoint. But let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Does anyone know what the word undergirding consider? I mean, not consider. How to stir? It's literally, it's the, the, Engl- the Greek. Third time's a charm. Irritate. Provoke. Is that what the King James says? There you go. So really, the command would be that on Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, you're thinking about, what can I do 
to provoke, to stir someone up to love and good works? Spur? Yeah, absolutely. So the command is really, it's not just enough to gather. We're gathering with an intent that we've been planning to do, which is giving thought to. That's the, that's, the, that's the verb. Let us consider or give thought or plan how to stir up one another to love and good works. Um, and if you're not sure how to do that on Sundays, spend more time planning. <laughs> that's, that's what it really says. So because we have a sufficient sacrifice, and because we have a great high priest, let us all together draw near, let us all together hold fast, and let us all together give thought to how we can incite each other, spur each other, provoke each other to love and good works. That's, that's so yeah, the corporate fellowship is huge. Because the concept being, I could be, here's the idea of, of the provoking. Think of the way like someone tickles, you just respond. Someone's down and they're dull and they're discouraged and you irritate them into reaction. <laughs> you provoke them into good works. It's a weird word picture. It's what he says. So the idea is something that's really going to act upon them in a, in a powerful way to get them to move and stir and, and wake up out of their lethargy. That's the idea. And we need to be doing that together for each other. Um, per, Perseverance of the saints is a group activity. Christian sanctification in life is a group activity. Um, and so we need each other to do this. We're at the time. Um, I'll stick around for a few more minutes. And uh, with that, I will bid you all adieu.